I'm Logan Tyler Smith, filmmaker, film critic, and host of Logan Land Rants. Welcome to Logan Land Rants. Today, I will be talking about the 1931 film Frankenstein and the 1935 Bride of Frankenstein on the Criterion Channel. I'll talk about some of the buzz surrounding the movies and the films at the time and since their release, including how they adapted and created modern icons and some of my thoughts on the movies more broadly, you know, pros and cons, what I thought worked and what didn't. And I will be talking about these films the best way I know how. Welcome to Logan Land Rants. First, a quick rundown of what I thought worked about Frankenstein 1931 and what didn't. More on Bride of Frankenstein 1935 later in the episode. In Frankenstein, a mad scientist attempts to play God by sewing together dead bodies in order to create his own version of man. However, this fiendish creation ends up going on a killing spree due to his unfortunately lacking understanding of humanity. And there are definite reasons that this film is iconic. It created icons of Dr. Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster, the monster in particular is well-performed. His presence and appearance will likely stick with you long after the credits roll. The film's limited length also means there is no fat on it. Its story is quick and effective and gets its themes across efficiently. The narrative themes as a result of this really stick and land well. The idea that we shouldn't play God... It's pretty timeless. The drawbacks are fairly minor. Audiences who don't like older movies and black and white visuals may be disappointed. But for anyone who wants a quick, effective story, ideally these classical choices will not matter at all. As I always say on this show, you make your own choices of what you watch. However, if you like old school monster movies and want an effective, thematically well done and well performed piece of cinema, I have no doubt you will be immediately won over. Welcome to our first conversational interlude, which is going to be a recurring segment where I basically uh, talk a little bit, like just riff a little bit, you know? It helps to take a break from the uh, scripted sections of the of the show, you know? And uh, first, obviously we're talking about Frankenstein right now, if you listen this far. Uh, we were talking about the 1931 film Frankenstein. Isn't that cool? And believe it or not, these episodes are going from favorite to least favorite from the specific collection in the Criterion channel. So keep in mind that, uh, these two are tied for my favorite, Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. But I figured I'd start with Frankenstein first in this Frankenstein double feature just because, I don't need an excuse. I just like them both equally, and I decided to go with the original first. Fight me. But, uh, obviously, I'm mostly gonna talk about a variety of, uh, factors, uh, throughout. This is mostly scripted, but obviously I impart my own style. Uh, the direction. The thing about the direction of Frankenstein 1931 is that it's good. Like, everything fits the material really well for the most part. Obviously not everyone's black and white. A fa- obviously not everyone's a fan of black and white, as you've found out earlier. But I am. 
And also the writing really adds to the themes in ways that really work. Like writing's just good. Who cares? Now, a short essay on what I think the Frankenstein movie does better than anything else. Creating an icon. Not just a monster, an icon. Have you ever wondered what makes an icon? You probably have not wondered this if you have ever seen an icon. You just know it. However, I will attempt to explain what makes Frankenstein's monster in the 1931 film an icon. There are many ways to make an icon, but if I could boil it down to three items for the monster in particular, Frankenstein's monster, it would be its presence, appearance, and how Boris Karloff weaves these two items together seamlessly. As far as presence is concerned, part of this comes down to filmmaking craft. The introduction of the monster, partially due to the scene's editing, is jarring and gets you unsettled. This presence is emulated and enhanced by how the monster shambles and moves. Every movement it makes is unnatural, and that serves the monster's intimidating presence. The monster's appearance is, of course, similarly unsettling. A lot of this is iconic in appearance anyway, the bolts on the side of the neck and stitching on the monster's skin that hints at its unnatural nature. The distinct appearance adds to how the monster moves, making it memorable and therefore iconic. Boris Karloff also gives a memorable, almost human performance that makes the appearance and presence of the monster work well. Boris Karloff's facial expressions on the monster's unnatural appearance gives the monster a life its creator would have been proud of. However, the presence and appearance ultimately remind you of the monster's artificial nature, something that the monster seems to be at odds with in regards to itself at the time. This would, of course, be explored more in the sequel, but it serves the material of the original also. Karloff is what I would say makes the already well-made 1931 film. The makeup and performance, combined with the filmmaking craft, works really well in creating a memorable character and therefore an icon. The more memorable and timeless it is, of course, the more iconic it is. Here's our next conversational interlude. Uh, obviously, I've focused very heavily on performance because the performance is phenomenal Boris Karloff is great like there's no real dispute for it in my opinion and that performance combined with the writing direction mentioned in the first conversational interlude really resonates and it's with that in mind we move to the next one Now that we've gone through the Frankenstein 1931 film, I think it's important to remind you that this is a double feature episode. Now we will talk about its sequel, Bride of Frankenstein, and I'll give you a brief rundown of what I thought worked and what didn't, starting now.
In Bride of Frankenstein, Frankenstein's creature manages to survive his deadly final encounter with the villagers. After learning to speak and fighting his way through more villagers, he tries to convince his surviving creator to create him a romantic mate. It is very rare for a sequel to be as exact in quality as the original or superior. But this film appears to be both at different times long after the credits roll. The film maintains all the effective narrative and performances of the original film while building on the film's themes in surprising ways. Boris Karloff is great as always, adding depth to the character as the monster develops language abilities. The framing of the narrative at the beginning of the movie adds to the mythic feel of the movie while hammering home the film's point of going against the will of nature by the film's ending, which hits like an anvil. The drawbacks to the film are so minimal that I can't give them much credibility here. If you are bummed out by campiness and black and white visuals, then something may well be the matter with you in my opinion. If you like classical cinema or even if you like the original film, I sincerely hope that you can like this movie the way I do. Ultimately, it sticks with you the way the original does in the best way possible. Did you miss me? This is Conversational Logan here, talking about Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, much like the first movie, the direction and writing are really good. Like, the writing is even like a step up for me, in my opinion, but everything else like works about equal to it. Like I said, Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein are tied. But again, all the elements work really well together. Now, a short essay on a thing that Bride of Frankenstein does especially well. Make a good sequel. Ever wonder how to make a great sequel? There are obviously many examples of great sequels I could choose from. But right now we're talking about The Bride of Frankenstein. This film works well on its own, but it builds on the original film in three main ways. Its performance, its themes, and narrative. Boris Karloff's performance made the last movie. But here it's amplified to almost campy but effective proportions. The scene where the monster learns language and drinks wine with a blind man proves funny as much as it is effective and entertaining. Ultimately, all the elements that made Carlos's performance great in the original film are added to by the situational elements. Some people say acting is reacting, and I think that holds especially true in these scenes in one way or another. As far as themes go, it would seem impossible for it to match the thematic material of the original. And yet the movie does, by introducing another abomination of nature. One would even say the title character.
The themes of not playing God or going against the will of nature are hammered home in the film's final scene for this reason, and the idea of them creating another life isn't necessarily plot-motivated. Far from it, actually. In fact, it's motivated by the previous creation thinking that he can play God in a similar manner by manipulating his creator. And there he definitely fails. Which brings us to the narrative. The film is structured by Lord Byron being told by Mary and Percy Shelley, Mary Shelley, of course, being the author of the book both movies are loosely based on, telling the story. This may be meta, but it also adds to the fact that the story has a point, to deliver a narrative that is effectively thematic and performance-heavy, but also continues the story from the original film in a way that is organic and works. All these elements work in unison to make a great sequel, but ultimately it comes down to building upon a previous work. Sequels don't always work and can in fact be shameless cash grabs, but when they are made with love and effective knowledge of the original movie, then it can work more than enough. When we bring all these essays and summaries together, what do we find? We find how to create icons, we find how to make a good sequel, and we learn more about monster movies and their place in cinema history. These are all very interesting to learn, especially for my listeners, potential and current. These are just some of the handful of lessons we can learn from this Frankenstein double feature. <laughs> uh, back to conversational interlude number four. The final one for this round. <laughs> the final one for this round. For this podcast, what am I saying? Uh, but the performances are great. I mentioned that earlier, that it kind of carries over into the next one. It may be, seem like it's uh, the same thing as the first, but I think it's almost better. And that's why they tie. And it's why they resonate. Now on to the conclusion. Special thanks to the Criterion Channel for making this film available at the time I watched it. Here's what else you need to know today in showbiz. The 95th Academy Awards were held on March 12th, 2023. Everything Everywhere All at Once, amazing movie, won multiple awards, including Best Picture. It was also reported that the Academy Awards had a three-year ratings high, which is pretty cool. Quentin Tarantino is working on his final film, currently called The Movie Critic, which some people believe to be based on well-known film critic Pauline Kael, although there's no evidence to support this yet. And James Gunn is going to direct Superman Legacy, a Superman film as his next movie, which is one of the first movies to come out of James Gunn's DC era, which is pretty cool. Today's episode was mixed in Audacity, edited in Adobe Premiere Rush, and engineered by the host, with original music from Ben Sound, Mozart, and Beethoven, all remastered by the host. With Logan Landrance, I'm Logan Tyler Smith. See you next time.